0: You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed.
1: Welcome to episode ninety-four of the Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Stat, and I'm joined by my co-host this week, Jeremy Paxson. Uh, we're gonna have a great interview here in just a few moments as Kevin sits down with Jason Gay from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, they kind of dissect, uh, you know, the, the, the sports landscape as a whole. Uh, kind of dive into uh, what's going on right now in Washington D.C. with the, you know, the Redskins. Uh, you know, kind of the disappointment they've had in the last few weeks with both the hockey and NBA seasons coming to an end for the city. Uh, but they also get into some really interesting discussion with the. Houston and rock specifically james harden whether or not he's a good fit for the city but uh jason gay great interview he also provides some insights on the sports media landscape and kind of gives uh, kevin some mentoring advice if you will uh but he has a great book out called little victories and you can also follow him on twitter at jason Gay. and he's a great reporter for the wall street journal uh, but jeremy kind of some big news broke on saturday morning and that's uh, dallas keichel The Astros ace Cy Young winner from 2015,
0: uh, probably one of the leading candidates for the Cy Young Award
1: in 2017. He's out with a pinched nerve.
0: Yeah, pinched nerve in the neck. It looks like he's only going to miss one start. But as you know about pinched nerves in the neck, uh, you know, they can be more serious than they appear initially. And I'm kind of wondering, is it worth it for him uh, to keep playing now or maybe just maybe sit this one out and wait till he's fully healthy so that he doesn't have this issue in the fall?
1: Yeah, so obviously the Astros want to look at the long-term success of Dallas Keuchel, specifically when they get into the playoffs in October, considering, or I guess, hoping that they continue on the hot streak that they are currently on. But Dallas Keuchel is placed on the 10-day DL because of a pinched nerve in his neck. Uh, Astros do expect him to return Saturday against the Orioles. Uh, Brian McTaggart and Jake Kaplan were the first to report the news. But uh, Keuchel said that he first felt the pinched nerve when he woke up on Wednesday, the morning after his start in Miami. And uh, he, he told the team on on the flight home, which is, I don't know, kind of encouraging that he actually spoke up about the injury considering last year in 2016, he had some inflammation in his shoulder, uh, didn't pitch as well you know he he's got that bulldog mentality where he's he wants to make every start, and uh, it's good that he finally did step up because I think he realized that if left unchecked, this could be an injury that
0: lasts for a while, yeah, no I mean no kidding, pinch nerves or nothing to mess around with. But I think this sort of begs the bigger question about sports injuries and self reporting. I remember uh, earlier this week. Uh, Giselle, Tom Brady's wife, had mentioned something about him getting concussions and not reporting them to the Patriots. And then later on, we read that Drew Brees had some comments about self-reporting and injuries. And he said, well, within the context of concussions in the NFL, he said it's a quote-unquote gray area. So I think that this is a a really interesting phenomenon with guys who – you know what what influences their decision to self report or not because it seems like some guys go for a while and to their detriment and definitely to the detriment of the team well, I uh, we'll, we'll get into the NFL subject in just
1: a moment, but I I do see your point. I I I think in the NFL is a little bit different than Major League Baseball because of guaranteed contracts. Baseball, basketball, you have those guaranteed contracts. Whereas in the NFL, uh, you you have some contracts that are structured that you only get paid for the amount of games that you play. So I think in in those cases, I think some of those athletes are incentivized uh, to you know to jump into that. But we'll get into that here in just a moment. But uh, really quickly, I want to play you some audio from AJ Hinch on his pregame press conference on saturday morning he said that the astros feel like they're having everything in control and that uh every team has to go through injury issues like this
0: it's never never good when you you lose one of your best players or best pitchers and and he's gotta he's gotta take a step back but um you know we feel like we have everything under control we're gonna do what's best for him what's best for our team and and uh and put him on the dl so it's it's unfortunate. It goes through every every team has to deal with something like this at some point in the season. Sometimes more than once with with different players, but. Uh, it's the nature of the business.
1: So again, big news for the Houston Astros is Dallas Keuchel is placed on the 10-day DL, and we kind of hope it's just 10 days, uh, but ultimately his health is the uh, the most important thing. But uh, the Astros are 8-1 and one in his nine starts this season. He leads the AL and wins ERA second and in whip, innings pitch, and batting average against. Uh, he's been uh, lights out this year, and it's been very encouraging for the Astros fans. I think that's a big part of the reason why they are sitting in first place right now with the best record in the American League. But uh, Brad Peacock will start Monday in place of Keichel as the Astros take on the Tigers and uh, left-handed pitcher Asher Tolliver is taking his spot in the 25-man rotation and a uh, 25-man roster and I think this is kind of significant because he's a left-handed pitcher uh, out of the bullpen and uh, right now Tony Sip is the only guy that the Astros have uh, from the you know coming out of the bullpen as a lefty so could potentially, uh, you know, if Tolliver plays well, then I, I I think we could see the Astros maybe not focus on a left-handed relief pitcher uh, at the trade deadline. So I think this is kind of a big uh, tryout essentially for Tolliver. But he's currently two and zero on the season with a two point seven zero ERA and ten appearances uh, this season with the AAA affiliate Fresno Grizzlies. Uh, he's pitched thirteen point one innings, fanned twelve batters, but has walked ten while allowing four runs on seven hits. I think the number that strikes me immediately is his walks. I think uh, issuing ten walks and only. 12 strikeouts is a little bit concerning. It's it's nearly one walk per inning. I think that you've got to be a little concerned about that, uh, you know, if you're getting in those high leverage situations in the uh, in, in the bullpen. But we'll see. Uh, ultimately, Dallas Keuchel needs to come back healthy.
0: Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I, I don't think um, the Astros have, when we talk about playoffs, when we talk about, um, you know, the pennant and all that stuff with the Astros in the conversation, I don't think that we can have that without Dallas Keuchel healthy. So I think whatever he, need, whatever he does, he needs to take – the team's long-term, not only his health, but the health of the team going into the rest of the season into consideration when he talks about coming back.
1: Yeah, and I, I think
0: for the Astros uh,
1: this season, your your concerns were with the pitching staff specifically were, can Keikel get back to normal? His 2015 numbers so far, yes, he's done that. And the second question was, will, will Lance McCullers be healthy and and so far he's been healthy and he's he's pitched phenomenal so the astros have a great one-two punch in their offense has just been lights out uh you know for the better part of the season and uh, jeremy I, I i know in the past that you haven't been necessarily the biggest baseball fan but that is correct, Austin. But is there more excitement for you around this baseball club just based on the hot start that they've had through the middle of May?
0: You know, I actually, it's interesting you say that. There, I have been paying attention to the Astros a little bit more than I thought I would. And that's only because um, I, I've. I see a lot in Dallas Keuchel that I like, and I see is it the is it the beard? It is the majestic beard. It's, <laughs> it's the majestic beard. I, I, the one I'm envious of, um, of course. But no, it's it's. I, I think seeing an Astros team that resembles one that I. Uh, you know, in my estimation, as a pretty, um, you know, layman in terms of a baseball fan, one that looks like it can go a lot farther than, you know, the so-called Astros have in the past. Well, of course. I mean, you you look at it a few years ago, the Astros uh,
1: lost 100 straight games or 100 games uh, over three straight years. And it, I think it's a testament to the process. That Jeff Loonhow has you know, brought in. He's brought in the, the metrics. He's brought in the money ball. He's built the farm system through the draft, through uh, you know, shrewd trade deals. I, I think he's, he's done a phenomenal job. And I think for Astros fans, it's encouraging because you went through those down years. And for the people that stuck
0: around with the team... It's just so rewarding to watch right now, which weren't many. I might, you know, my dude. If, if, if you went to an Astros game, which I did several of them back during the down years, it was. I mean, you could, you could, you could buy five dollar seats on StubHub, like. Right by the dugout. Yeah, if, the I mean, it was it was pretty ridiculous. You go into in a Minute made, and man, you just you sat down there close to the field, and you looked around you, and it was nothing but empty seats. Um, that has completely turned around. Of course, you know there are going to be games where there's not a whole lot you know, attendance right. is not is not great. Mid-week,
1: midweek games against lousy opponents. Yeah, exactly. But
0: that's I mean, but that's the MLB in general. Right. So I would you know this is this is a, a fantastic team. I, but I do think that Dallas Keuchel is the ingredient that they're going to need to keep going, uh, especially in the playoffs. Yeah, we'll see if uh, what Brad
1: Peacock can do on Monday night against the Tigers. But uh, kind of bouncing back to what you had brought up a few moments ago, Tom Brady, uh, you know, not necessarily self-reporting those injuries. It seemed like uh, you know we don't have the audio right now, but uh, Giselle Bunchin was on CBS, I believe. What, what is it? Good Morning America, CBS Today. I don't, I don't know what their morning show is called. Uh, but yeah, she, she had some comments, and it was essentially, uh, you know, she was asked the question, "Do you want?" tom to retire because you know he's 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 getting up there in age 40 years old but he's still playing at an mvp caliber level uh, at the quarterback position and then she just kind of dropped the bombshell out of nowhere it wasn't prompted about him potentially suffering multiple concussions and does that concern you as a fan of the patriots a fan of the nfl if tom brady isn't reporting these concussions and keep in mind it, it recently the nfl did put in place that if you don't report these concussions, you can be fined hundreds of thousands of dollars as a franchise and potentially lose draft picks, which I think, as an NFL franchise, is probably more important than losing the money.
0: Yeah, I think it's, I think Giselle probably, um, I think the, the term in the media is that she misspoke. Um, she probably, looking back, would not have said anything about concussions in Tom Brady. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I looked at what Drew Brees said, and he said it's sort of, sort of a gray area. Um, for for NFL players, you know, there's, and there's definitely this, as you said earlier, an incentive to not report. But I think as we're learning longer and longer, we go on, we see some of these NFL greats suffer from horrible, debilitating neurological problems as they get older. And, you know, I I wonder if the system is just such a point where, um, you know, where these guys, no matter what, won't report. I wonder if it's kind of broken, you know, so to speak. And I wonder if um, sort of the larger culture around football needs not just, you know, the changes that have been made up until now, I just don't know if they're enough to prevent this kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I I, I don't know. I think time will tell. I I really wish that... You know, some of these players would look at the long term health. Uh, you know, in all sports, And that's why I have to tip my cap to uh, Dallas Keuchel for at least you know speaking up about this injury that he says he's. Just, I guess it's not really an injury. He just woke up with a, a pinched nerve, and you know that happens at times. I think I've woken up with a pinched nerve uh, at times just from sleeping wrong. And obviously, baseball does have a history of crazy injuries. I think it was what Sammy Sosa back in the day who uh, pulled a muscle in his back from sneezing too hard. I mean, there are just so many ridiculous baseball injuries, but. Uh, it's a very fair point that you bring up about football. And there was actually a story that came out uh, this week in Fox Sports. Ken Rosenthal actually published it. And it was discussing uh, the surge in, I guess, youth participating in Little League Baseball and baseball as a whole. It, it, and I'm kind of curious, this is like the first time that this has happened in in a long time. I think uh, the narrative for the longest time has been uh, youth are playing basketball, they're playing football, they're playing flag football. Uh, but in, in terms of baseball, it's just kind of a dying sport. But numbers that were released uh, show that uh, over a three-year period, uh, there's been an annual growth of 6.5% in casual participation of baseball. And it's gone up from 18.1% uh, in 2015 to 2016. So uh, participation in baseball is rising. And, and I'm curious, Jeremy, does this have to do with concussion issues um, in football? Or is it just you know, young players like... A, Carlos Correa, uh, you know, uh, Mike Trout, who are just, I don't know, captivating some of these youth athletes.
0: I, I mean, I can't see how it wouldn't have to do, wouldn't have something to do with the decline in youth football participation. Um, it, it, you know, I was I read, reading an article from, from Forbes here not too long ago where it just talked about how the, the concussion issue is definitely influencing parental decisions on what sports their kids can and cannot play. I think you're probably going to see a continued decline in football, and you're going to see basketball and baseball benefit from this, it, which is really good news for baseball because up until this time, it's just been bad news <laughs> for baseball. I mean, year after year, participation in baseball has been declining and now it's coming back up. And I I think it's coming at the cost of football because if you look at sort of the, I, I remember when I was growing up, baseball was sort of like the sport you played, you know, when you were like, you know, in uh, elementary school, middle school, but then in high school, everyone wanted to go out for football, right? And I think especially in Texas, especially in Texas. Yeah, growing up in Houston, like football, obviously, it's like, it's it's like a state religion. So everybody wanted to go out for football. And I think that that's now changing. And I'm seeing with some of the parents that I work with in my in my job there, the narrative that they're going off of is changing a little bit like football's a little bit riskier than we thought so maybe we try baseball maybe we, we try basketball maybe we try soccer which is arguably not much safer than football
1: and I, <laughs> I, well that's that's a very interesting point because i think a lot of a lot of parents start their kids playing soccer and, and i think they have this false sense of security that soccer or soccer is a safer sport because the kids are you know just running around but the issue comes in when they get a little bit older and start Heading the ball,
0: yeah, they start heading the ball, and um, there have been at least a few studies that have linked heading, uh, especially in young kids, with brain changes later on. So it's—I don't think it's a safer alternative. I I think eventually, though, what's probably going to happen, there will be, I think, a bottom that football hits. There's always going to be some people that want to play football, but I think that the sport as we know it is going to change, and I think that the Tom Brady issue. You know, underreporting. Can Tom
1: Brady like ever stay out of the news? I, I mean, seriously, I, it was Deflate Gate. Now it's now it's a concussions, and now it's. Uh, you know h- him sponsoring Aston Martin. I was going mean, to say, yeah, <laughs> he
0: just signed some. I mean, I, I see. A, I was seeing it, looking at a picture of him a few minutes ago. Him sitting on an Aston Martin. I mean, that is he is the goat. I mean, without a doubt. That, but that being said, though, I mean, I don't know how much longer this party can last for football. Yeah, so, uh, it, it's and I say that as a fan. Well, I, I mean, say that as a fan.
1: We've we've discussed this numerous times on the show, so we're not going to you know continue to uh, to, to dive into the subject. But very fascinating, and uh, you know, we kind of went all over the place there. Dallas Keuchel, Drew Brees, Tom Brady, and then of course the little league baseball. But yeah, I, I I was very passionate about Little League baseball growing up. Uh, I think that one thing that is uh, very important is if you can capture those youth and you know get them invested in the game at a year. Your- at an early age. And I think what, what is happening right now in baseball is you've got so many young stars, uh, you know, just look at the Cubs. They've got, you know, uh, so many young stars led by, uh, you know, Chris Bryant. We've got uh, Francisco Lindor up in Cleveland, Carlos Correa, Alex Bregman, Jose Altuve, all young guys that are energetic. And I think that, uh, you know, maybe you can look up to those guys as examples. And uh, obviously it's, uh, you're not going to have as many sustained injuries as you do in football, but uh, very fascinating stuff. But we're actually going to jump into the, uh, the interview real quick with uh Jason Gay from the Wall Street Journal, and again, Kevin Cook sits down with Jason, uh, who has a uh, you know a book out that called "A Little Victory." So make sure to check that out on Amazon. Uh, but I, I hope that you do like the interview. It's going to discuss. Uh, you know, kind of the sports landscape as a whole sports media business, and also a little bit on the, uh, the Rockets and, uh, you know, James Harden versus John Wall, that, that sort of thing. So I think you're really going to enjoy that conversation. Uh, but before we actually jump into that interview, I want to remind you that you can follow our social media platforms. Just search weekly brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also subscribe to our website at weeklybrewcast.com. We've been posting a lot of great content on there over the last few weeks. Uh, really you should make that part of your daily visit. Uh, you know, each morning when you wake up so highly recommend that but uh, without further ado let's get into the Jason Gay interview it's time to sit back relax and be informed you're
0: listening to the weekly brew
2: and now we welcome into the weekly brew podcast Jason Gay of the Wall Street Journal uh who who I heard and I really wanted to reach out to you because I heard you on the Bill Simmons podcast talking with Brian Curtis about something we've been kind of kicking around on the show but of course uh you're a respected columnist uh, I think a very funny one as well uh you actually uh (laughs) It hasn't been updated on the Wall Street Journal uh, bio in quite some time. because It says your book is coming out in November 2015. Of course, Little Victories did come out in 2015, so that hasn't been looked at in a while. But uh, but certainly a guy I really enjoy reading. You do have an interesting perspective, which is why we wanted to have you on here. I didn't know that you were the originator of my favorite tweet of all time until I went to do some Twitter research. On September 22nd, 2015, this is the best tweet of all time, there's a guy in this coffee shop sitting at a table, not on his phone, not on a laptop, just drinking coffee like a psychopath. And that has brought me more joy than any other single tweet in the world. So congratulations for that.
3: Hey, man, I'm here to help. Uh, (laughs) That's quite a thing to be remembered by. Maybe I can get that engraved on my tombstone, that tweet, right? Will people know what tweets are when we sort of go six feet under, or will this just be some sort of fad we'll look back on?
2: I kind of hope not. I mean, I feel like the negatives often outweigh the positives, even as a journalist. But that's just my—I I deal with a lot of negative every day. And no, that's sort of the, the the tree on which everything else I now know about you gets hung. But you always go back to that's the guy that came up with the tweet that made me laugh so much. So you're obviously you're in Washington, uh, which is an interesting place to be right now. Uh, we get into politics a little bit on the show. I try not to, but my co-host loves them or whatever. But uh, you know, it's an interesting time. And you you look at like uh, the the. Uh, You talk about the malaise in Washington. You mentioned some of the the recent uh, downs that the sports teams have had there. Is is Washington a depressed sports city, and does that have anything to do with the political climate?
3: Well, let me just correct the record just quickly, uh, which is that I'm based in New York City. The column you're referring to was about sort of the Washington sports scene, and and yes, you know, I think that they are going through a rather arid moment uh, for D.C. sports, which is kind of funny because they just had two teams have playoff runs but both flamed out in game sevens, uh, but you know we both know that the thing that really drives Washington sports for generations has been the football team and with the Redskins in such a institutional funk and ownership um, you know malaise I mean people just are so frustrated with that team, you know I when I went to college had the uh, Lovely experience of becoming friends with a lot of uh, very very hyped up Redskins fans. Who this was the early '90s, and they were dominant. You know, they had just come off a decade where I think they had gone to three Super Bowls—one, two—they won another one in '92, I believe, uh, that that '91 season. And you know, they walked on uh, water. They thought and things have obviously radically changed and I'm still friends with all these guys and they talk about the Redskins like they're some lost family that they don't uh you know have any sort of relationship to anymore. They just you know sort of have turned their back completely on the team for a myriad of reasons, but mostly comes down to ownership. They're really dissatisfied with Dan Snyder. Uh and it's a shame, you know, because it is a great Uh, football franchise, great football tradition. These guys had tremendous memories of being taken by their families to RFK Stadium and so on, and the vibe is obviously very different now. And, uh, you know, listen, if they got it together, uh, which they don't seem to have any... uh, There doesn't seem to be any evidence that a uh, great rise is coming, but were they to get it together, I think people would see, much in the same way we saw with the Dallas Cowboys last season. Um, You know, there's a Big segment of the population that just loves that football team, so be good for the sport. Whether it's going to happen, I, I highly doubt it right now.
2: Well, in the, the name controversy, obviously Redskins. Some people say professional football team, what have you. That's obviously been in the news as well. But what's interesting to me is that Snyder bought the team for eight hundred million, uh, and I think it was ninety nine, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, not not a whole lot of success. I think three division titles since then, but it's now a three billion dollar franchise. I mean, you really can be incompetent and sort of fall ass-backwards into money is what it seems Dan Snyder's done with the team here. I mean, where does he rank among uh, detrimental owners in that league, and what's do they need to get rid of him in order to be successful? Is he just a Paul that's going to hang over this organization until he's gone somehow?
3: Well, I I don't think you can get rid of a sports owner for incompetence, sadly. Um, You know, there would be a pretty long list of uh, owners that people would like to get drum out, including the owner of a basketball team in New York City um
2: <laughs> he was where I was going
3: next <laughs> you know i what you referred to at the top about franchise valuation, you know that is the name of the game for a great many people who are in the business of sport, you know they invest in these teams and they watch their money grow. Uh, rather quickly, especially when you consider the ascension of television contracts and so on and so forth. I mean, when the LA Clippers, the forlorn, formerly forlorn, or still sort of forlorn LA Clippers, sell for two billion dollars without any stake in the stadium, um, that shows you, you know, how radically that world has changed. And uh, as you said, I don't know what the Washington football uh, valuation is. You Three billion. I mean, two point nine
2: five.
3: 2.95 I mean that might even be conservative. Um yeah, so there's good value there for people who have gotten in early on and you know th- there's a difference though between um being able to manage uh, the economic fortune of a franchise or watch the the the, the value grow and winning, you know, obviously uh, Those not necessarily a big correlation there, so that has to, you know, if you could ever figure out some sort of secret sauce to correlate the two, I think you'd have a better situation, but that doesn't appear to be the case right now, at least.
2: And from an outside perspective, that's maybe the most frustrating part is I guarantee you Dan Snyder goes to bed every night thinking, I'm doing a heck of a job. You know, this team is worth X times as much as it was when I first got it. And yet I think anybody that even casually follows football would say he's not doing a good job. (laughs) He's really been a detriment to that organization, which I mean, you're right. You can't get rid of an owner, obviously, but you know, things happen. I'm sure there are many people that are willing to buy the team. He does seem to be holding them back somewhat. And it does seem like he's not well liked there either. Uh, You mentioned James Dolan's another one. We do have some poor ownership. When teams are exploding in value, like this i mean we're not going to see them change hands i would imagine we're just kind of stuck with terrible owners who are getting benefits from owning the team uh, and yet aren't really required um, to hold them in public trust or to sort of do things for the good of the team the good of the city and so forth it seems like uh, inequitable maybe i don't know
3: what seems to work and really the only thing that really seems to work in terms of sports ownership is being able to commit to a culture and, you know, a plan. And, you know, there's really no evidence to suggest mercurial ownership, i.e. changing coaches and general managers and getting rid of this quarterback and that quarterback really works. I mean, has there any, you know, that's, that's rarely, rarely been a successful approach. Um, what works much better is, you know, coming up with a plan, seeding it, you know, maybe suffering uh, quietly for a handful of years as you grow that culture, but committing to a long view. And that often means ownership has to take a little bit of a back seat. They can't be obviously meddling. They can't even be sort of publicly, um, you know, uh, certainly can't be publicly bad-mouthing the franchise and so on. and, And they have to be resistant to change. That's a very hard thing for people who are coming from other business worlds where they're, had success by sort of getting in underneath the hood and messing around, um, and yet it is sort of seems to be the success formula. I mean, look at an organization like the San Antonio Spurs. I mean, most people probably don't even know who owns the San Antonio Spurs, and yet they have been inarguably the most you know consistently successful franchise in basketball over the past two decades. Uh, because they committed to one idea and one culture and you look at Greg Popovich has been the coach for almost every one of those seasons over the last twenty two that they've gone straight to the playoffs. You know, that's a hard thing. You know, that's a hard thing to do and, you know, if it was easy to replicate everybody would do it. But I do think that still there are a great many people in sports ownership positions who are just too variable. You know, they're too willing to sort of chase the bright shiny objects and they want to please the press and they want to do the kinds of things that will get attention and headlines, and it's just an anachronistic way of thinking. I mean, I'm here in Boston right now. we got game one with the Celtics in Cleveland. I mean, here the Celtics bottomed out, you know, barely four or five seasons ago by dealing away the big three and Ray Allen, a Ray and left free agency, but Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, you know, a team that hit bottom. Now in the Eastern Conference Finals, You know, won the regular season in the Eastern Conference and have the number one pick on the draft because it's a very savvy maneuvering, but also patience, you know, willing to hold on to assets and to not make moves for the sake of making moves. And their future seems very secure for the next 10 years because of, again, sort of having a plan, having a long view, and having a patient commitment to it.
2: Well, you know, and that certainly brings me, because we have a history of that here in Houston. You know, obviously the Texans, I think, have been uh, overly indulgent with Rick Smith. We've made that point many times on the show. And Daryl Morey, one of the longest tenured GMs in the league now, I believe, after, you know, the many firings and shufflings and so forth that have gone on. So if that's if that's your key to success, I'm pretty happy with what's going on here in Houston, even though it's occasionally frustrating.
3: Let me ask you, I, I I don't want to interrupt, but I want to ask you a little bit about the Rockets, because I'm glad I, to have... So, you know, I'm, 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 uh, I, what we say, a casual admirer of the Rockets. You know, I sort of was a little dubious on the philosophy, but over time, it's won me over, and clearly, they know what they're doing with regard to, you know, putting a team together. Um, obviously, that was not an optimal uh, game six for Houston a couple of days ago, but. Um, I keep seeing these little references to, you know, saggy ticket sales, $1 beer night, you know, not all the butts in the seats. Like, first of all, I never know whether or not that's 100% true, but but if it is true, why is there a little bit of a um, problem generating enthusiasm for the Rockets? Because they're a wildly fun team. Yeah,
2: I'm not sure exactly why that would be. I know that I sit – or my dad, rather, had courtside seats for a, a number of years. He, he's, he's wealthy. I'm not wealthy, but he would treat me there, and so I would get there early. We would watch warm-ups. People just don't come early. So now, wait, wait, see- wait, wait, wait.
3: You just can't say it. So you had courtside tickets when you were a kid. Now, what uh, era rockets are we talking about here?
2: This is this is up until the last season. He just ended them, uh, not because he was furious with the team. I think just a financial decision. I had no control over it, and I was grateful for the time that I was able to to sit there. But but it was but when kind of start? Got...
3: I mean, was this Elijah one years? Did he have him it's, way no, back? No, no, no. This, this was
2: five years ago. No, we we went to the summit uh, when when Elijah one was playing, and I saw games during that year. But I was very young. I was born in eighty seven, so I, I kind of got to know them a little bit. I fell in love with the Rockets during the Yao and Tracy era. We still didn't have season tickets then. We had packages and then uh, right before uh, right before we got Harden actually. I think they were very cheap and so my dad just kind of got some and we were there for like the whole Harden era so far. So it's been I guess it's been 7 years and when we're out or whatever. But
3: but it's So you were the young you're the young kid on the court side. People were like, "Who is that kid? Does he know how lucky he is?"
2: <laughs> and I did. I knew exactly how lucky I was. I could not have been more grateful and it did stoke a lot of passion in me. And to be fair, this is Row B. So there's technically a row of people in front of us. Floor seats, not courtside seats, but certainly visible on television. On my friends were were really enthused. Is about it that. as good as
3: everyone says it is? Is it just like a better. completely different experience? It's better than everyone it's, says it's why it. Why? Say. What makes it so great?
2: I would say if you're gonna buy like a package of like six games or whatever, it would be better. To just have that one experience where you take someone else who's maybe not expecting, it, you sit courts and the players are just—you hear every word they say to each other. It's like a whole different experience. Bill Simmons talks about this too a lot. He's, um, uh, you know, a, a mentor, a role model of mine. I guess is, is more accurate, but uh, but he—I mean, I, I agree with him. It's it's a, it's a it's an immersive experience that it's not like if you're you know eight rows back, even ten rows back, and you feel like you're part of uh, the spectacle a little bit, and really you are because you're on television. So, but the spectacle—I mean, I've been to other towns. Toyota Center is um, quieter. Uh, a little more docile. I feel like people are wandering out more than Oklahoma City maybe or more than, you know, out at Oracle Arena. Like, there are much better places. I just It seems tepid uh, sometimes, and I'm not sure what you can point to, except late arriving traffic is terrible in this city. There are no other, uh, other things to do, and I think that James Harden is not the most um, relatable or likable superstar, and so he wouldn't necessarily have the draw that maybe a Steph Curry would or a LeBron might.
3: Well, let's talk about that for a second, because Harden's an interesting— I mean, is it that he's like— it's not like he's a jerk. He doesn't seem like he's a jerk. He seems like a rather lovely, intelligent guy. Is he, like, a little too quirky? Like, does he not sort of inspire the kind of, like, you know, fan loyalty that, you know, sort of, like, you know, um, I don't know how to, you know, blood, sweat, and tears type athlete. I mean, you know, he's, a, he's 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 a you know, by his own admission, you know, a, a different kind of guy, kind of um, uh, idiosyncratic, eccentric uh, basketball player.
2: And I would say that to me personally – I love that. I love guys that stand out and are a little bit different. I perceive him as being quiet and thoughtful. Um, he's kind of not not boisterous or rambunctious, but but I would say that there are a large number of people in the city who find that to be more standoffish, more cold, and just can't get fired up about the guy and take, you know, vicarious joy in his successes the same way they would if the guy were a little more bubbly or even if he were maybe a little more mean. You see that too. So he's just kind of hard to hard to access, I feel like. And, and there have been articles, I think, that have humanized him a bit. I don't know if that'll change in the long run, though, because he seems to like uh, things to kind of be that way.
3: And it's sort of even the nature of his playing. I mean, he's not a guy who is necessarily like, you know, you take Russell Westbrook, who, you know, acts like every game is the invasion of Normandy. I mean, he's just like <laughs> a totally different, you know, chemical uh, organism than, uh, <laughs> than Harden is, but... Um, you know, Harden's a pretty magical player, and it's you know revolutionary in many ways for the game. And uh, I hope Houston comes around to really appreciate what they have because it, you know, they didn't get there this year, but uh, you know, there's 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 quite a future there.
2: Well, we had Maury on the show uh, a couple of months ago, this is, uh, you know, before playoffs were even remotely set, and he said, you know, at the end of the day, uh, getting through the first round, being competitive in the second round would be uh, a victory. Those would be a good season for us, given what we were projecting, what we put together, and so forth. So, I mean, it's hard to get away from that Game 6 performance, particularly the way Harden performed in it, but but overall, I think the season was uh, a pretty positive one, and I just wonder if now it's... A... Here's what I want to ask you, though. Obviously, uh, you were writing about Washington recently. A guy that's been in the headlines as kind of a, um, a foil to Harden, who, who I guess people say collapse or whatever in his uh, in his last playoff appearance, and has done so traditionally throughout his playoff appearances in his career. Uh, John Wall, on the other hand, had one of those golden, you know, MVP, uh, you know, I'm the face of the league kind of moments with that uh, with that game winning three uh, not too long ago. Of course, they lost in seven, but but okay. So you, John Wall versus Harden, it's comparable? I think Harden's a much better three point shooter. Obviously, Wall's a little bit younger. There are some differences there. Harden's actually uh, averaging a few more assists as well. But Wall is a guy who just seems to me. Like he's maybe ready to, um, like he has enough physical gifts and is learning enough of the game to take a step forward. I mean, who do you think we're going to look back and remember as the, as the greater or better player? Is it Harden or, or does Wall have a chance here?
3: I think Wall has a chance. I think, you know, standing still right now would say that Harden is, you know, the superior player. You know, he has a real shot at winning the MVP, although I do think it's going to go to Westbrook. Um, Wall, you know, I don't know if he's had a top five MVP type season yet. Um, you know, they are stylistically different players. Wall's more of an end to end player. Harden is more of a set offense kind of guy, but, you know, fluid. Wall better defender. Um, you know, if if I had to pick one, of course I'd pick Harden right now. But I do think that Wall has this upside and he has the other thing, which is that he has a tremendous um potentially top ten, top fifteen player in Bradley Beal playing with him. Uh, who has shown his own flashes of sort of MVP caliber-type talent. So um, that's a tremendous asset, too. So I think a lot of people will be watching to see how that team develops over time. They were fun. Um, They really, really underperformed in that Game 7 fourth quarter, but they were competitive for three quarters of it. I mean, they were there. They were there. It was up by one at halftime. So it's not as if they completely laid an egg in the way that you're Lovely rockets, dude.
2: Yeah, it could not have been worse, honestly. And we are still, we're still <laughs> figuring out how to cope with that and get through it and still love the team and so forth. But uh, kind of a final a uh, topic or, or idea here. You know, obviously uh, we've been kind of talking about it on the show. I'm a relatively young guy. I'm about to be thirty uh, in the summer. Uh, i have only been doing special writing this, man. For... I'm
3: telling you, like I see your sunset. Thirty is not young anymore, man. You got to start <laughs> a move. You know,
2: I figure if I say <laughs> it enough, though, it'll stick in people's heads. Like, oh yeah, 30's kind of young. It's 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 subliminal as much as anything.
3: But, but 30, oh, yeah. 30 the new fifty, haven't you heard? Good guy, that's that's
2: <laughs> terrible news for me. But I got I
3: got started late too. I taught for a fifty the, the new thirty. Okay, all right, well let's figure it out.
2: That's much better. See, that's actually headed in the right direction. I feel good about that. But, but no, I I, uh, I did some other things first, so I kind of came to this a little bit later, which I think is great because I was immature before and I'm a little more mature and capable of being responsible and so forth now. But I'm kind of facing uh, the problems at thirty that a lot of people I know are facing at you know twenty two, twenty three as they graduate from college, look for that first job or whatever, and they worry about you know the ESPN layoffs. Someone we talked about recently, but layoffs are, are uh, an epidemic. You know, in the media industry in general. Certainly, the Chronicle had some not too too long ago. Um, <laughs> What was your path? I feel like my path, to the extent I've had success, and it's been, you know, uh, limited, but, but, you know, I have had some. It's been because I knew people. People vouched for me. People uh, went out of their way to sort of help me, put me in a position where I was going to get an opportunity, things like that. Um, what I always tell people when they ask me is, like, the most important thing is networking. Have people know your name. Have people know your work. Be friendly. Get to know them so that you're top of mind if something comes up. Is that uh, What's the priority for somebody that's looking to get into this craziness uh, that's been going on in the sports media landscape?
3: Well, first of all, I don't think there's a, you know one way to do it, and I would be wary of anybody who suggests to you, okay, this is how it's done. You know, I think that uh, there are many different paths to get where you're going, and I you know I think reporters, journalists, editors tend to be rulesy kind of people, and you know my eyes go up, my eyebrows go up a little bit when I hear people say, like, this is how, what do you got to do? Because you know I've met people from every imaginable career path who got into things that they loved, but. Um, You know, my arc was an arc that I don't know if it's even uh, as, you know, it's it's certainly not uh, as prevalent as it once was, which is that, you know, I had sort of the classic, I worked at a tiny paper, and then a less tiny paper, and then a less tiny paper than that, and then a bigger paper, and a bigger paper, and so on. And, you know, some of the rungs of that ladder have changed, uh, especially in the sort of, you know, regional and low, small-town type um, newspapers, Uh, and you know, I needed every second of those experiences because I didn't know anything. You know, this was like school for me, and I had the benefit of tremendous editors. Along the way, I had to be taught everything.
2: Um,
3: And, you know, I think those skills and that experience is incredibly important. And having that kind of formative experience somewhere along the way I think is really good. I think that if you can find it... um, in an environment where you have people looking over you, telling you when you're screwing up, telling you uh, how to do it right, telling, you know, giving you kind of the, um, the backbone of an education you need. I mean, how is it any different than any other job in that way? You really want to have the kind of, um, you know, someone looking over your shoulder. Uh, that said, I do feel like there's a um, – a little bit of a chicken little attitude about journalism. Um, And I get a little like eye about the idea like uh, journalism's cooked. I wouldn't tell a college student to be a journalist. I mean, I would tell a college student to be a journalist. Are you kidding me? If you want to do it, do it, man. You know, there's plenty of opportunity out there. You've never had more, a wider proliferation of places to work for. You've never, it's never been easier to get your voice out there. There's never been sort of more, um, you know, different kinds of media that are open to you, you know, like a reporter is no longer just a print reporter. You can be a uh, video personality. You can go into Snapchat. You can do social media. You can do any imaginable kind of audio, all this kind of stuff that, you know, there are no boundaries or walls put up anymore. And, you know, the trick, of course, is figuring out how to do it enough uh, in a way that makes you a living. I mean, I think that's key, uh, but I, I, I just, again, I, I, I hate it I hear it, you know, when I see, like, an older reporter editor people, you know, my age or older, saying, like, ugh, anyway, you wouldn't do it. Because I can tell you what absolute truth. I've been hearing people say newspapers and media are going out of business as long as I've been in newspaper and media. I mean, literally decades decades i mean truly i mean the my entire career i've been hearing people say you know the good old days are over it's never coming back and something always happens and somebody always finds a way and you know the espn thing i would say like you know look the individual people who lost their jobs it's a tough situation and i feel for them and i've been there literally i know what that's like however you know i cannot believe to which it's been sort of Inflated into this kind of um, Rubicon moment for sports media, where it's anything but. If anything, it actually shows this rather sort of competitive environment that ESPN is now in, that makes it, you know, need to be more nimble, and makes its competitors maybe feel a little bit buoyed uh, that they can, uh, you know, mount serious uh, media competition to it. I think there, you know, again, it's never optimal to see people lose jobs ever, but I do feel like there is. Uh, some real reason to be optimistic.
2: And, and I wonder if, and I, don't, I haven't heard this spoken about much, but as these guys, very talented, some of them at ESPN or were at ESPN land at other places, does that diaspora uh, maybe level the playing field or add some credence or credibility or, or or power or reach to some of these other small organizations that are kind of picking up these former ESPN guys? Like, will we look back and say, like, maybe that was a time when, uh, you know, that talent sort of went elsewhere and it kind of changed the landscape a little bit because I, I could see that happening.
3: Yeah, I mean, he, there's potential for that I have no you know insight into where people will land and if they'll stay in sports media or they'll do the exact same thing they're doing um, I would also underline that there are a great many people who are extraordinarily gifted at sports media who don't work at ESPN and work at other places and sometimes by their own choice you know they don't want to be part of that uh, environment and um, you know they're continuing to do great work. I just feel like, uh, you know, I haven't noticed some sort of downtick in the quality of coverage um, given to sports in this country. We're, you know, it's still a growth business. People still care about this stuff as goofy as it sometimes can be. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of young energy uh, that is, you know, coming up with all kinds of new ways of interpreting watching these games, which I think has added a great shot in the arm. I mean, look at, you know, we talked about basketball for a while, look at the way basketball is now written about, covered, analyzed, uh, visualized, projected, all that kind of stuff. Uh, It's created a whole breed of much smarter fans. I think that's really exciting, and that's not ESPN's doing alone they had a part in it but there are a great many other people who are very good at that stuff too
2: absolutely man well that is all uh, riveting and fascinating and relevant stuff at least in my experience i know to some of our listeners as well so I, I i appreciate you indulging me it's something i'm considering as well because i'm i'm in a place that i love but not where i want to be when i retire someday or not what i want you know in my uh, in my obit or anything like that so it's you know I'm always struggling how do i get the point what would point
3: you B? want to do like what do you what like like if someone said okay here's a clear open road in front of you. What are the kinds of things that you would like to do in your uh, career?
2: I had a, a a creative writing background at the University of Houston. I was in the Honors College. did like, wrote plays, wrote fiction, had a couple things published here and there. Kind of saw that as being like, uh, like I always envisioned myself as a child as being a novelist. You know, I, I identified with those characters. And it turns out it's really fucking hard to write a novel. It's just not easy at all. So I kind of switched to like short fiction. And then during that time I started writing for the newspaper. I was like, wow, it's an immediate audience that is already uh, uh, married to or interested in the product you're covering. It's just, a, it's a really cool dynamic and I felt like maybe what I could do is bring um, literary ambition or sentiments or your aesthetics to sports writing. As it turns out, I keep getting people telling me to don't go over 800 words again or it's going to be my job, you know. But, but I think that that was sort of I felt like maybe I had something to add that not everyone did, you know, and people I admire did. Even Hunter Atkins, who's recently uh, here at the Chronicle, I think he's doing some really, really terrific work, and he joins us from time to time, and he he's kind of been a mentor as well. But yeah, that's I think bringing some uh, thoughtfulness, uh, you know, and other people do it as well. I read those people, but that's kind of where where I got into it and where I saw my value as being. And it's been it's been a struggle, but it's been worthwhile, I think.
3: And you don't see it as being one thing. You're like sort of this non linear approach. You want to do, you want to write, you want to do audio, video, presumably. Like it's not one thing. You don't consider yourself just one particular skill set
2: that's right and I think that the people that I like there are people here in Houston particularly like Sean Pintergast is a really strong writer but he's known as a radio host he does both very well you know he's a regular Houston press columnist and he, he's getting uh, more looks and more opportunities and things like that it just seems like guys that are personalities that you look at their writing you look at their audio you look at their video it's kind of all under the umbrella of like this is this person's brand uh, which is you know an arrogant weird way to talk about it but that's how we talk these days and I like guys that have you know that consistency and that have that diversity and I feel like it probably could Hurt me to just be everywhere I could possibly be, right,
3: yeah, no, man. If you have the stamina for it, I think that's great. I think that the thing that you're doing, which is really admirable, is that you're building audience, and you know that is the kind of thing that transfers and you know brand is the kind of term that makes me roll my eyes as well, but uh the truth of it is what you're really talking about is audience relationship, and I think that sometimes you know people in print you know, any other media you get a little insulated from the Uh, audience that you're trying to connect to whereas what you're doing is you're building up these people who will you know hopefully follow you wherever you go to and there's real power in that once you create that bond it's like you know you start out you're trying to impress your editors you're trying to impress your editors editor you're trying to impress your you know mother but really what it's all about is you know connecting with that audience and when you do that man you know that's like just raw muscle that will grow and grow and build and build and make you stronger and stronger. That's what it's all about, right? If you have that audience relationship where people feel like, you know, they're not just like coming to you because it's the topic you're interested in, they're coming to because it's you and you make them laugh or you make them, you know, think about something differently, which is also sounds like you're doing. That's I think what it's really all about. Um, uh, but it's not easy, you know? It's not easy. Not everyone has the luxury of being able to do multiple things like you can and, and are the skill for it.
2: Yeah, and and also just depending on what position you land in, you may f- find more opposition. I'm in a weird situation where I'm like my editor and my staff at the same time, so those shared responsibilities mean I have a lot of latitude, and I'm fortunate for that. And I can I can appreciate that. But I got to say that was the most uplifting answer you could possibly have given me there. I feel much better about uh, about my place in the world than I did about 20 minutes ago. Man, I appreciate that.
3: You gotta like it. I mean, right? You gotta like it. Like it's it's sort of like a uh, 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 an unbullshittable like profession, right? If you don't like it, you don't care about it and it doesn't make you happy to work on I'm not saying it's like all has to be silly, but I'm saying if it doesn't give you pleasure to do your job, that's gonna bear out pretty quickly with readers or listeners or something like that. If you're miserable or you don't give a crap, like that 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 will reveal itself. And I you know, this is gonna sound really hokey, but like you know, when I'm writing a column like for me, it's like doing a crossword puzzle. It's fun. I like to, like, figure out where words go and, like, how to make a point cogently. Uh, you know, not always successfully, but, like, you know, rearranging, editing, punishing my own writing. Like, all that stuff, to me, it, it, it brings me pleasure in the same way, you know, people like to cook or, like, to, you know, exercise, stuff like that. I like that that actual ritual. And maybe that makes me a weirdo, but uh, at least somewhat happy weirdo It hopefully bears out in in the stories. Um and it sounds like you have that and if you have that you know dna in you i think that that's a really per important thing cuz no one can sort of teach you that you got to have it i think
2: right I, I actually agree and i'm i'm very flattered <laughs> it's a pretty limited sample size you've been dealing with but uh but i'm flattered nonetheless that uh that you see that. I, I don't know. It's uh, it's an interesting question, and one worth pondering and many more interviews to come. But I've kept you long enough, man. I appreciate your time so much. Uh, you are, of course, uh, with The Wall Street Journal, which is uh, kind of one of the gold standard papers still, I think. I mean, it's, it's a very well-respected institution. I read a lot of writers from there, and uh, and you're one of them. And I certainly would encourage all the listeners here, if they have not encountered you before, to go follow you on Twitter. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? I don't have it off the top of my head.
3: It's just my name, uh, Jason Gay, J-A-S-O-N-G-A-Y. And I will say, the journal has a tremendous uh, literary and reporting tradition, and, and uh, I, am, I, am, I am easily the greatest embarrassment in its history.
2: <laughs> that's a testament to its, uh, to its quality, then, if you're the biggest embarrassment <laughs> in history. And I happen to know it's not true as well. But, uh, but you are too, uh, too kind and too generous, man. We appreciate the time so much, and hopefully we'll talk to you again when we have another, uh, another big pressing problem we need to work through.
3: Awesome, man. Take care.
1: Closing time. Great interview there by uh, Kevin as he spoke with Jason Gay from the Wall Street Journal. And of course, you can follow Jason on Twitter. Just search at Jason Gay or Jason Gay. Uh, But great stuff there. Uh, Really enjoyed uh, Jason taking the time out and joining us on the Weekly Brew Podcast this week. Uh, But one thing that he did touch on was the NBA a little bit. And kind of, you know, granted the conversation was more about Kevin and his courtside seats and, you know, why, uh, you know, Rockets fans tend to show up late at games but uh obviously right now the nba playoffs just aren't exciting i mean to be perfectly honest i mean we have the warriors absolutely dominating out west and the cavaliers just running uh you know tire tracks over the uh the the boston celtics and i I think that's what we all want to see we all want to see cleveland against golden state for the third straight year but the, the nba playoffs it just hadn't been that great but there was one story that came out um over the weekend jeremy and i'm not sure if you saw it uh, Enos Cantor, who plays for the uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder, was actually detained in Romania. He had his passport i believe cancelled uh, by the Turkish embassy there and uh, if you don 't know cantor, uh, he has a foundation called the Enos Cantor Light Foundation, and uh, that foundation exists to uh, quote provide uh, awareness and assistance for children's development through education, poverty, alleviation, and social harmony and i guess he's part he was he was on this international tour uh where he had traveled through multiple countries, and when he gets to Romania in Bucharest, he gets his passport taken. And, and the reason why is because he's been outspoken against Turkish President uh, Erdogan, who, of course, we we had the uh, the coup attempt here a few months back. And I, I don't know, does this kind of concern you when political figures kind
0: of overstep their bounds? Oh, undoubtedly. Did you speaking of stuff we were bounced? Did you see Erdogan's entourage like beating people up in D.C.? Well, exactly. Like that's beating that the Enos crap Kanter out of protesters. Discusses. Like, dude, you don't come here and do that. Let's. It was a violation of federal law for him to do that. I don't know how he's gotten away with it, but yeah. I mean, Erdogan is a is a, is a bad dude. I think there's not a whole lot of people that disagree with that. I think it's funny. I'm looking at um, Cantor's comments here. Um, and he said that he is a dictator, and he is the Hitler of our century. So that, that's that's a strong statement. Pretty strong words. Pretty strong words. I don't know if I call him the Hitler of our century. I, I think that, that 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 title belongs to uh, you know undoubtedly somebody else. But it is I think of note that Cantor's is a good guy, and uh, he's trying to do well by his foundation and the people that it helps. But. Um, this is not I mean it doesn't surprise me that Erdogan would do this I mean it this had to come in his command there's just no oh, way without question yeah yeah so I mean I think that this just further distances and isolates him from the rest of the mainstream world because he's you know by I think most conventional measures sort of a fanatic in within the Turkish government so
1: yeah he's um, he's essentially consolidating power yeah, in exactly. Turkey and, and right. now it's impacting probably the best Turkish basketball player
0: right and you know what I, I think that uh, Cantor will Probably, he, he will make it back. There, that's not it's not a, a matter of we he make it back, but he's just making it difficult for him, and that's just unfortunate. And, and I really, I really think though that Cantor can use this as sort of a, a way to magnify to the rest of the world who might not be paying attention to what's going on in Turkey, what is what is actually happening, because um, most people you you ask them about Erdogan, they're like Erdogan what? So, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: And and it's, it's it's fairly fascinating to me because uh, Cantor has been very outspoken for a long time, and in fact, his family has disowned him because he's spoken out against the Turkish government and uh, the abuse of power that's going on in Turkey so uh, kudos to uh, Enes Cantor for actually speaking up and uh, I think it was probably about two weeks ago there was a story uh, ESPN outside the lines did on the uh, Syrian uh, soccer team and essentially how uh, you know they have been hamstrung by politics and you know the civil war that's going on right now in Syria and it, to me it's interesting because' In the United States, we get all like, I don't know, upset when Colin Kaepernick decides that he doesn't want to stand for the national anthem, which, you know, he he totally has the right to do that, but he's being punished in the United States. He doesn't have a contract entering the twenty seventeen season. And he's there are definitely some quarterbacks that do have contracts that Kaepernick does have better numbers than. So it's like why is you know, why is he being held to a different standard? Whereas you see people like enos canter who are you know almost celebrated for speaking out
0: yeah you know i think it's hard to equate colin kaepernick and what he's doing with enos Cantor. um i mean they're both standing up for a cause they believe in well it, but right but i have to look the at difference what, is one agrees with your politics and no no one doesn't. Just, I, I honestly don't know a whole lot about Cantor's politics um but it, it you know if if Kaepernick was running a nonprofit bent on you know helping helping people, helping I mean he's put
1: millions of dollars behind organizations that support causes for equality. So he might not have a necessarily nonprofit foundation specifically, but he's not just speaking up; well, he's I, putting I, his money down. You
0: know why? What I, what I think it makes it easier to sympathize with Cantor is that he is sort of standing up to you know what we could call a dictator and and a sort of that's what, a, a country that's sort of heading down down the shoots um, with him at the helm. So. Uh, Kaepernick's cause a little bit. It's a little bit muddier, um, and I think that it's really easy to nitpick Kaepernick for using the current climate in the United States around racial politics as sort of an opportunity to um, increase his visibility when his talent on the field has not always yielded the results that um, teams he's playing for would like. So I, I think Kaepernick is. It's not. It's not quite the same thing. I, I see where you're going for, but I, I think that Cantor is. Um, he's. He's. He's a little bit cleaner. Uh, hero in this this comparison uh, that, that might be a little bit tough i think both of them are
1: doing what they believe in so i admire both of them for you know standing up for their beliefs and i think i, I think of course enos is taking more of a risk in the sense that he had his passport <laughs> removed and, and blocked and he's currently uh stuck in romania but uh it, it, it's crazy to me because I, I probably three years ago around this time of year i was actually in turkey and i was in istanbul And it was such a beautiful country. And, you know, there were protests and riots, probably, I think they happened on May 1st. I think I arrived in Turkey on May 7th, was there through May 10th, then obviously came back uh, through Istanbul uh, on, like, May 21st, 22nd, something like that. But it was a beautiful country. And just to see everything that's happened on the news take place over the last few years with Erdogan, you know, consolidating more and more power, I don't know, it's kind of sad to me to know that i had so much fun just enjoying the culture of that country and now it seems like there's a coup attempt or a bombing in ankara or istanbul going on every every uh you know a few months but
0: gosh we live in such a messed up world well it's a shame the coup didn't succeed <laughs> because this actually happens in turkey once every like decade or so so i i'm i'm actually sort of uh, i was a little disappointed they didn't overthrow him but you know i i think I think Turkey has some stabilizing external forces in the region. I think namely United States. I mean, we have a lot invested in Turkey. We have military bases over there. Um, So I I don't think all is lost, but certainly with the situation as regards to Cantor, um, I think he's in a good spot. I don't. I think he's going to make it back to the U.S. and he'll be a hero on the team and in the in the media spotlight for a while.
1: Yeah, and uh, thoughts and prayers, I guess, out there to uh, Enis Cantor, He's doing it, uh, a good cause, but uh, you know, kind of pivoting really quickly back to the NBA. Uh, the NBA actually announced their All NBA First Team this week, and uh, LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, Anthony Davis, James Harden, and Russell Westbrook were all named to the first team. Uh, interestingly enough, James Harden was the only unanimous unanimous yes unanimous. And, and to me, okay. So there were what was it 100 voters or something like that. 99 people voted for LeBron James. 99 people voted for Russell Westbrook. Who what is going through your mind? Why do you leave LeBron and Russell off of your all NBA first team?
0: I don't know. I don't know wh- why you could leave Russell, but LeBron is a diva and at least somebody stood up to him. I mean that that's kind of how I look at it. He's the best player in the world. I agree. I agree he is he is LeBron. He makes other people better. I think that's what makes him one of the greats right? He makes other players better around him. which I mean, is he's he's arguably having the best season of his yeah, career. Yeah, I know, but he's he's just LeBron. He he bothers me. So, so Okay, because
1: he bothers you he personally. He bothers me that's personally. That's a reason to leave him off your Yes, NBA it deadline. is. He
0: bothers me personally, and it's absolutely no. It's, so uh, you're saying he's not one of the top five players in the NBA? No, he's one of the top five players in the okay, NBA. Okay, so he, should he, be unanimous. he got on to the... Okay, listen. We're, he's, we're, he's there. We're, we're, we're splitting hairs here. He he got on to the team, right? He got on that, to that roster. I'm glad that Houston has something to to hang its hat on, that James Harden was unanimous in that decision. That's all I care about. And I I just, anything, LeBron, LeBron is one of those players, and I know I'm not alone in this. I know he's one of those players that you sort of enjoy seeing kind of upset (laughs) about something. Well, it was kind of funny. On Friday night, uh, it was announced that LeBron was not a MVP finalist.
1: And he went out that night and... The Cavs just beat the living snot out of the Boston Celtics. They were up like 41 points at halftime. Won the game, by, I believe, like 40 points. The game wasn't even that close. I mean, I think when LeBron gets angry... You need to put all of your money down, LeBron your life savings, Smash. Yeah, yeah, put your life savings on uh, whatever team they are playing. Uh, what was it, LeBron James from a few years ago? But anyways, uh, to me, uh, just looking down uh, the all, all NBA Second Team, real quick. Uh, no, no big surprises. Um, no significant uh, omissions. Uh, there, there were a few players that uh, did not uh, make you know, the all NBA team. And I, I I think Gordon Hayward and Paul George were probably the two biggest that stuck out to me. Uh, But one of the concerns that I do have Jeremy with the all NBA teams is that you build this based on uh, kind of an outdated lineup. It's two forwards, a center and two guards. I don't even think the Rockets have like a true center. I mean, can you can you really tell me that, like, Rudy Gobert and DeAndre Jordan are two of the, like, top 15 players in the NBA? I mean, I, I think that you need to modify the way you vote for the all-NBA team. I think you just need to have, like... I don't know, like, uh, two guards or, like, just just label it front court, back court. I mean, w- we live in such a, a different era now in the NBA where you, you don't have been, a true center.
0: Haven't we been for a long time? I, yeah, mean, I it, mean, this, it, whole, this, this, this th- whole era of, like, airing it out from the this, three-point line, this, it's a new this, dynamic. Well, this reflects, like, um, the way that basketball used to be played, like, before you know, the revolution in the sport really took place when you, you start... I mean, this, this this harkens back to a time when, you know, basketball was, like, all white. <laughs> all white players, and... Um, I'm not sure where you're going with this. Well, you know, what, what I'm saying is that the... Are you the, trying to make basketball great again, Jeremy? I, I Absolutely. What? Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's completely inappropriate. Not where I was going at all. Um, no, I, I think that this, this harkens back to a time when basketball was, was thought of differently, right? When players weren't as flexible, when players were assigned a spot, and that's what they did. Um, I, I mean, I talk about this as a layman. I'm not a basketball fanatic. I'm not by no means an expert. But um, no, the, the, the way that, that these players are judged should absolutely reflect the current dynamics of the sport and not some sort of formulaic arc outdated. Yeah,
1: it's like when you see these all like college football teams or all NFL teams and you have like a fullback listed. I mean, how many teams use a fullback? How many teams just use two wide receivers? I mean... None. You see four white, five white. Right. Yeah. It I, mean, yeah, yeah. I, mean. I, I think that you need to modify these ballots for the time, uh, you know, that they are actually uh, in the era that they are actually applying. But one of the interesting things about uh, it all, all NBA teams is that means that James Harden and John Wall are now eligible for Supermax contract extensions. So just because of the way the new collective bargaining agreement works out, John Wall and James Harden could get paid. And it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, if Daryl Morey actually does extend the contract for James Harden, as of course you know he he did receive a contract extension last year, but now I, I believe he can get paid what sixty to seventy million more. I mean, it's a big deal uh, that both Wall and Harden
0: uh, landed on All NBA teams. Yeah, and that uh, you know I, I sort of think, think as a Houston fan, is, is it worth it for us to do that for Harden? I mean, I, I don't. I mean, he's he, clearly one of the top five players. Oh in, yeah, in the well, world. he's undoubtedly one of the top five players. But is he? I'm thinking about this in a larger context of: Is this good for the team? Is this good for?
1: I think it's good for a team because it shows you're committed to him financially for a long term. So if you're trying to get a guy like Gordon Hayward, uh, you know, or a, a okay. Paul George, I don't. I think Paul George only goes to Los Angeles. But if you're trying to get one of those other top tier NBA players, and you could say, "Look, we've got James Harden locked up for six years. Like we're built for success. The only thing that we need." is a second star like you to come here at Toyota Center uh, to kind of foil uh, Harden and uh, be that second star that could take over a game in a playoffs or game six when Harden is slumping or dealing with a concussion that was unreported. Uh, who, who knows? I mean, I, I think a second star is what could take this team to the next level because you look at Cleveland right now. You've got Kyrie, Kevin Love, LeBron, three stars. You look at Golden State, They've got four stars. They've got Clay. They've got uh, Steph Curry. They've got Kevin Durant, Draymond Green. I mean, they've got four All Stars. I, I totally Rockets for, have
0: one. I totally forgot that there were more players on Golden State's team than Steph Curry. I thought he, <laughs> I thought he was the only guy on there. Well, I think Kevin Durant's the one that's really helped that team. But uh, (laughs) I really cannot wait to see that NBA Finals. I wish it was just like a
1: best of 15 and we could just get rid of the rest of the playoffs. But uh, yeah, I I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens at free agency to see if the Rockets do uh, ultimately make a move. But uh, Jeremy, one kind of final thing, I guess, before we uh, close this week's episode. And um, there's been a lot of posts on Facebook this week. I don't know if you've seen it in your timeline, but in my timeline, uh, there have been several people listing their favorite player in each sport i don't know where this trend started but i thought it'd be kind of something fun to discuss on this week's show and uh, the sports listed are nfl college football nba college basketball major league baseball nhl boxing wrestling golf tennis soccer i don't watch all those sports but let's just go through down that li- this list and i i, I want to hear your favorite player <laughs>
0: for favorite some player. of these sports yeah. and-,
1: and just kind of know why but uh, let's start off with the nfl i mean who, who is your all-time favorite nfl player
0: Oh, all-time favorite player. Um, I, I tell you what, I don't really have an all-time favorite. I respect Tom Brady the most. Of course. The, of course. And I think that, that's easy, right? I think if I'm thinking like uh, back to when I was you know, rooting harder for the Texans than I am now, um, Arian Foster was a beast in his day, in the 2012 season. It's a flash in the pan, but he was he so was, good. But he was so good, and I really, really wish that we could have we, we had that, that guy on the team for the rest of the years that he was on the Texans, but he, he put out. He, 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 got injured, whatever. Um, what about you NFL? So I grew up an Oilers fan, right? Uh, Oilers, you know,
1: obviously Warren moon back in the day. Uh, he, he was a huge guy to watch. Um, in the '90s, and of course, Steve McNair and the team moved to uh, Tennessee. Uh, but when the when the Oilers did move, um, my grandfather, uh, you know, lived in San Francisco, Las Vegas. He was a 49ers fan, so I started cheering for the 49ers because of my grandfather. And so, I, I think one of my favorite players to watch growing up was Jerry Rice. I mean, one of the greatest receivers of all time. And it's just amazing if you watch film on him today. I mean, this is something that I didn't appreciate uh, at such a young age, but if you look at the way he ran routes and just the way he broke the ankles of defensive backs, I mean, it was just, it was so much fun to watch. And, uh, you know, it, I don't know. It was kind of cool that I was able to share that with my great grandfather, uh, who was a, another huge 49ers fan. I remember them winning the Super Bowl and just being kind of thrilled uh, when they beat the Chargers in the nineties, but uh, college
0: football player, college football. Um, I'm going to have to go with the, with the only um really, Claim to fame that Baylor has. <laughs> That's RG3. Uh, despite all of his questionable antics um, in his NFL career at Baylor, he was such a powerful force and made such an impact on me as a fan and completely changed the way that I think that the national media looked at Baylor, even in spite of the scandal that has subsequently happened. Um, I think that as a, as a Heisman contender, I mean, it was Heisman winner. Well, Heisman contender Heisman winner. Yeah. I mean, he, he completely changed Baylor just really single handedly. I mean, it was, and it was incredible. He, he goes down as my favorite uh, college player, though. I don't think he would be, greatest and we look no we're looking at the. you know
1: for me i would have to go with my favorite college player it's another number 10 another guy who played quarterback but a guy who played quarterback probably about five or six years before robert griffin
0: oh you don't get to say vince young i'm gonna say oh come on he's talking about the guy that would that spin his nfl fortune at applebees (gasps) we're talking about strictly college that's true okay vince
1: young I, i mean i followed high school football here in houston i remember watching like high school sports live every friday night on uh what then was like I believe channel fifty five the cube. Uh but the cube. Yeah exactly. Oh um, my gosh. A terrible name by the way. Uh but Vince Young, I remember when he was like a sophomore at like Madison High School and just how he how dynamic he was as an athlete. I remember he took over a game uh when they were playing like Lufkin and Reggie McNeil who ultimately played at Texas AM and it was just so much fun to watch and just the kind of the aura around him was just amazing to watch in, in high school. And then, of course, when he got to Texas, his last two years uh, were probably two of the greatest seasons in college football. He did not win the Heisman Trophy. I think he probably should have won the Heisman that year over uh, Reggie Bush. Uh, but to see what he did in the Rose Bowl for two straight years and to see how he just he was so much physically better and gifted, I don't think he had necessarily the skill set or the uh, the the knowledge to succeed at the nfl level but in a college game so
0: much fun to watch my 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 hatred for the university of texas uh colors my my perception of those years so i'm going to go ahead and just say that i respect your decision but i, <laughs> I disagree with it on purely an emotional level
1: all right let's get through these next few pretty quickly uh nba favorite player
0: NBA, uh, gonna have to go with Hakeem the Dream. I looked up to this guy. While I was growing up in Houston. Um, I actually got to see see him in person one time when I was like little. Yeah, and I was in Galveston. They were training. That was their training complex. Yeah, yeah. I got I saw Rudy jogging on the seawall, and I saw Hakeem. I don't, I forget where else. Anyways, this guy looked like a giant. He was a giant. He was, and I was, I was like ten at the time, and so he <laughs> was, he was. You know, yeah. I looked up to this guy. He was my idol. Um, yeah, yeah, I have to be Akim. So well. I guess,
1: I guess for me, I would have to, you know, being a Houston guy as well, I'd have to say Akeem, uh Trace McGrady, and also Yao Ming. I think those would probably be the the three guys. Also, maybe a, a Shane Battier type. Uh, Shane Battier, obviously, um, you know, now uh, in the front office for the uh, the Miami Heat, but he was a guy who uh, he just did it all. Uh, he 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 wasn't going to light up the scoreboard, but he just had that it factor on the court. And I think that was kind of separating for me. But college basketball, you have a name that kind of.
0: Surprises me a little bit, Christian Leitner. I think is the name. Why, Christian Leitner? Did you ever watch him play? I didn't, but I've seen enough tape, and I watched an ESPN thirty for thirty, and got really inspired by how much of an awesome asshole this guy is. That I just can't not pick him. I mean, I've got so all these assholes. i why you like Donald Trump. Uh, n- uh, no, not, no it's, not, it's, not, it's not. It's not quite the same kind of asshole. Uh, Christian Leitner was good at Duke. Uh, maybe not in the pros, but he was good at Duke, and he was so was he was, he was a, on the dream team he was and you know I look. It shocks a lot of people right I which yeah, that is interesting isn't it yeah, yeah I mean he was the best college player that year yeah yeah I I, I, I like not not just the way he played but like he was sort of, he it's what he represented I think at Duke and um in that during that particular so you time like period. dirty
1: basketball players
0: dirt See, people call him dirty. I don't. I, I. I mean, I think he was tough. He was. You know, I. I I'm literally I'm going off with of nothing but the ESPN 30 for 30 that I watch because I have all these Baylor players in my head that I could tell you and I'd be like, oh, well, of course you picked that. You So how do Baylor. you feel? How do you feel about Grayson Allen? The Grayson Allen, yeah, the current Duke player who trips everybody. Grayson, who? Yeah, exactly. So, so it's I, the same I, type player. You know what? The, but I, I. I like. I really like Christian ladres. Oh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going okay, to. I'm really confused by that. If I, I'm going to have to go with Tweety Carter. Uh, to, of course, yeah. he, okay, that was my next big is Tweety Carter. This, uh, the guy, the he, was guy like, he
1: was like 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, I had a class with Tweedy Carter. All-time leading scorer in high school basketball. He played high school basketball for six years because of the school that he went to. He was able to start playing varsity basketball in the seventh grade. Uh, he was not big in terms of height but he was he was thick he was right. he was a great point
0: guard he just really saw the court so much fun to watch yeah uh he he shot his threes were always fun to watch because yeah. he was like this little guy like yeah catapulting this and ball had, like, this like crazy, what, what, what seemed like
1: 50 yards across yeah. the court and then
0: he had these like crazy dreadlocks so whenever yeah, he jumped, yeah. they
1: just went up in the air and i don't know just fun
0: i had health class with him yeah yeah interesting yeah
1: uh, he, but uh, he was fun. Yeah. All right, let's look at MLB real quick. I'm gonna have to go with uh Craig Biggio and Jeff Bagwell. I mean yeah. Biggio Bagwell, that's Houston,
0: right? A- unanimous. Yeah.
1: Uh NHL. I, I I don't even know if I can name an NHL player. Wayne Gretzky? That's the only one that yeah. I remember in my childhood. Right. I couldn't t- I, I, I I don't know. This is
0: just kind is, of like Is a, the NHL still a thing? Is he, is that like a default answer? I don't know. I yeah, think it's yeah, a default guess so. answer. All right, uh I honestly couldn't <laughs> tell you more about the NHL. All right, what about boxing? Oh. You know, don't tell me Floyd Mayweather mike tyson okay i'm gonna go opposite of you i'm gonna go evander holyfield okay i like mike tyson i i I think his uh his his, do you like his acting more or his boxing more or his prison sentence is is, is there really a difference (laughs) um you know i i mike tyson is one of those figures that i think he's so fascinating in the media because he has gotten such a pass for a lot of things he's done. And he's done some terrible, terrible things. He's done things. some horrible things to women, other people. Yeah, like he's, he's done some awful things. And he gets this pass because he's he's Mike Tyson from The Hangover, right? Right. I mean, he's, he's the guy with a pet tiger. He's got a face tattoo. He's got a face tattoo. Uh, Ed Helms got a face tattoo that looks like Mike Tyson. I mean, he he gets a pass for all this stuff, and I think that's absolutely fascinating. I'm so curious why we do that, but he's he's my favorite boxer simply from the fact of, of what he is in our culture today.
1: All right, what about wrestling? I don't I don't really watch I refuse, wrestling. to
0: 100 chagrin. I refuse to acknowledge wrestling as a sport. Okay, so I'm gonna have to say Donald Trump is my favorite oh wrestler because he Stop was a wrestler. Trump. Exactly. He was, See, it's not a sport. Donald Trump participated in it, therefore it cannot be a sport.
1: I I, I got either. I think I probably have to go with The Rock. I mean, The Rock was such a big icon when we were growing up, and now he's the highest-paid actor in Hollywood.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think The Rock for president is an excellent idea. Okay, <laughs> all right. What about golf? Golf, uh, Tiger Woods, I guess. Yeah, I, think I mean, he was he, so transformational. He for the brought game. he brought the game to a generation that had zero idea what golf was, who played it. I mean, golf was this old white man's game, right? And I think then, it still is. For yeah, the most part. well, it's still okay, but but. Um, you have more you have our generation right the 25 and up generation that probably gives a damn about golf because of tiger woods at least partly
1: i think it's interesting uh right now uh this weekend the byron nelson classic is going on up in the dallas fort worth metroplex and uh jordan Spieth, hometown course missed the cut i think it was the 17th time to miss the cut in his uh pga tour career and you look at what tiger ha- has had done you know from you know essentially that I don't know, remarkable run from the, the late nineties to the early two thousands In his entire career. Tiger has only missed the cut 16 times. Jordan's not even 25, 26, and he's already missed it 17 times. So I think that shows you, you know, Spieth is probably one of the best golfers right now, but I think that just shows you how good tiger was in his prime.
0: Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I think tiger Tiger will always be that player that's uh, transformed golf and then later transformed uh, late-night comedy in a way <laughs> that maybe wasn't beneficial to him. Yeah. But it was really funny Man,
1: if, if Elon didn't take that nine iron to him, what would have happened to his career? But all right, let's hit these last two real quick. Tennis, soccer, do you have anything?
0: Uh, if I have to go with a guy, like maybe Andre Agassi, even though he wasn't... I mean, he was good. He was good in his time, but I don't really like. I don't really pay attention to tennis. I, I, I think, um, I think it, it has. It's the weirdest background noise because you hear a bunch of grunting, and like you might think that people are constipated, but no, they're just playing tennis.
1: Yeah, fair point.
0: Yeah, I, I just can't. I can't get into tennis too much. Um, soccer. Uh, let really me Kickball. I, I, I really, I've got nothing there. I yeah. don't even know. I'd probably have to say like Alexi Leis. R- and who's that? Yeah, exactly. You want? Yeah. <laughs> no one cares about soccer, guy. Yeah, um, I just don't have anything
1: for soccer or tennis. I tell like, you what.
0: Every four years, I will look who who are. Rosterers. Every four years,
1: I am the biggest Team USA soccer fan. Yeah,
0: of course. Everybody is. It's it's easy because it's a, it's a it's okay, like it's like go. why white here people go. celebrate here Cinco de Mayo. It's a it's an excuse to drink. Here we go. If, if we're
1: talking favorite soccer players, I'm going to have to go with Alex Morgan.
0: Alex Morgan? Okay.
1: Do you know who that is? Uh, Team USA women. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. I know Team USA, but right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I, I'm, his name sounds familiar. It's a, it's a she. Oh, Okay, so that you obviously don't know much. about Hold soccer. on, who was that soccer player who gotten who got into trouble for domestic violence? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, Hope Solo. Yeah, Hope Solo. Okay. Yeah. So she's your favorite player. No, she's not my favorite player. I'm just trying to think. I'm of really a soccer confused player. where you're coming. I'm at just. I'm, I'm trying to literally. I have no soccer knowledge, and so I'm literally grasping for for anything here. All right, fair point. Well, it's been an uh, it's been an interesting episode, and uh, we hope that you all
1: have uh, enjoyed episode ninety four of the podcast. And again, thanks to Jason Gay from the Wall Street Journal uh, for uh, joining Kevin and discussing the sports media landscape and just kind of sports as a whole. Uh, we really enjoyed that interview, and also make sure to follow him uh, on Twitter at Jason Gay. And of course you can uh, also check out his book Little Victories on Amazon. Uh, great stuff all around. But uh Jeremy, it's been fun having you in studio. It's like uh I
0: think the first time you've been back in
1: I don't know 2 3 weeks.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've I've um I've been well, last week, I got trapped in a male romper. I couldn't get out of it, and nah, I couldn't get into my car. Yeah, it was really tight. I was sweating, and I'm, I'm a little huskier these days, so it was really unattractive. I'm not wearing that today, but maybe next week. Maybe next week, I'll, I'll slip into a, uh, an uh, appropriately-sized male romper so and show have, you how trendy and awesome it can so you'll be. you'll have a Memorial Day male romper for us. Oh, absolutely. Memorial Day, I think on July 4th, I'm going to have a romper with perhaps Donald Trump's face on it. It's going to be get amazing. over
1: Donald Trump. I I think, think, no,
0: no. no I, think, just, I think by that time... Mike Pence could be president. Make male rompers great again? Were no. ever great? male rompers know. were never great. It's not a thing. Do not do this. I, I have to give Ted Cruz credit for a tweet or like, I don't know, something he said this week. He said that not all heroes wear capes, but none wear romp hymns. That is not fake news. It's not. He all actually right.
1: said that. Fair point. So <laughs> if <laughs> you want to see Cruz. Jeremy
0: and his romper, uh, we will...
1: Probably not post a photo of it on social media, but if you want to follow our social media channels, just search Weekly Brewcasts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And of course, we have to uh, give a shout out to Kevin because, you know, it he, he wouldn't be another show if we didn't mention Kevin's Twitter handle. So that's at K Michael Cook. You can also check out Jeremy Paxton at FiestaVera08 or myself at A Staten. Uh, but, you know, before we finally close, I just want to give a quick plug. Uh, for Hunter Atkins, uh, Hunter Atkins, thirty-five. You can follow him on uh, Twitter as well. Uh, but he had a, a great feature in the Houston Chronicle this week, and it was profiling Jeff Van Gundy, who we had on the podcast a few weeks back. Uh, and it was it was talking about his uh, his school uh, that he is essentially on the board of, and he's heavily involved with. It's here in Houston. It's called Provision uh, Academy. They do a great job, uh, kind of working with uh, kids that. Uh, don't have hope or didn't have hope and in school kind of gives them a career path and gives them role models. So uh, very great stuff uh, from Hunter. Make sure to check that out in the Chronicle.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, great article by Hunter and, really i can't say anything more than in a, po- in a positive way about provision it keeps kids out of gangs it's a great organization great school so i uh, highly recommend the article by hunter yeah absolutely
1: check it out and again his twitter handle is at hunter atkins 35 he's tweeted about it a few times we've tweeted it uh, on the weekly Brewcast uh, twitter page as well so make sure to check that out but uh, it was fun jeremy i really enjoyed having you on today
0: It was a pleasure. (laughs) Well,
1: again, this has been episode 94 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. Uh, Thanks to Jason Gay and uh, Kevin Cook for joining us a little bit earlier. And on behalf of my co-host, Jeremy Paxton, this week, my name is Austin Statton. We'll
0: see you next week. You've been listening to the Weekly Brew.